I'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and create today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to extend this respect to any First Nations, Torres Strait Islander and Maori peoples listening. There's this beautiful Japanese haiku that has really helped me, actually. And it's from a Buddhist um, master who has studied Buddhist philosophy for years and years and years. And in Buddhism, there's a sense of impermanence. Everything goes, a sense of non-attachment. And the haiku goes, the world is due, D-E-W. So due is impermanent, right? The world is due, yes, the world is due. And this last line, but even so. So the world is due. Yes, the world is due, but even so. And that last line is written when his two-year-old daughter died of smallpox. Mm. So as a Buddhist master, he knows the world is due. Yes, the world is due. It is impermanent. We're supposed to be detached from it. Everything comes and goes. But still. But even so. The first time I sat down with Dr. Rocket Scientist, author and Zero Waste Life Advocate, Dr. Anita Van Dyke, she was looking ahead to a bright and exciting future with her husband, James, and her beautiful daughter, Vivian. She was very close to graduating from medical school, and she just released her second book, The Zero Waste Family. But just two years on, things look very different. Today, Anita's list of titles includes Widow. Devastatingly, she lost her husband James to cancer in late 2022. He was just 40 years old. If you're a regular listener of this sweet and stable podcast, you'll know that some of my most connected episodes are the ones that are birthed during or after a significant life event. This one is no exception. At the time of recording and releasing this episode, that life experience for me is the passing of my beautiful mum and the grief that has followed. I've been loving doing these checking in episodes and as you'll soon learn, I had Anita high on my list and nature concurred. We agreed to have a conversation about death and the dying process and what is left behind. This honest conversation is dedicated to James and to my mum. It's also dedicated to every person who can no longer smell and touch and hear someone they love so dearly. It's also for anyone who wants to learn how to be someone to the person left behind what to say, what to do, how to be there and catch them in the oceanic swell that is loss. Thank you, Anita, for allowing the deep well of your own grief that you hold for James to spill over so that we can hear it and feel it and hopefully help you carry it. Here is the 
wonderful and articulate and expressed Dr. Anita Van Dyke and I for offline. P.S. I am sorry about the interference. We recorded in person at Anita's home and I think our pesky mobile phones tried to get involved. So my apologies. I wanted to start by saying that we experienced complete alignment recently. I've been doing these checking in with episodes and I only had a handful of people on my list to begin with to check in with and you were one of them. And I thought, oh, this is going to come so out of the blue when I contacted her. She'll be like, what? We've already had a conversation. You want to talk again? But literally a few days later, you DM'd me and I think we were talking about something else and you said, hey, if you ever fancy chatting again, I'd love to. So what did you feel just like drawn in that moment? Yeah. Yeah. Energetically I felt, um, and just to give a bit of context, I've had loss and grief in my life in 2022 when I lost my late husband to cancer um, that year. And through that grief process, it was very lonely and a lot of people didn't talk about it because they were too nervous to talk about it. And I remember that lovely conversation we had initially about motherhood, zero waste living and everything in between. And I thought we need to talk about grief more in a way that's healing, constructive and actually helpful. And so maybe we were energetically aligned in that moment because we both wanted to talk about the same thing. Because mm. mm. I don't think I had actually even shared publicly I definitely didn't share that my mum was <clears throat> sick. I don't think by that point I'd shared even that she'd passed. So you didn't know. So I didn't know. I wrote back to you and I was like, oh, my God, we're yes. actually moving through. I don't want to say the same thing. This is kind of what I want to get into with you is something similar mm. but not the same. Mm. Um, before we get into really what I think is going to be quite an emotional but, as you say, important conversation about love and loss and hope... I think is where we're going to end. I just wanted to ask, it's not a broad how are you, it's a how are you today, Mm. just today, how are you? Today I'm really good. And with this whole roller coaster of um, being a widow, really good is rare but also not that rare. Um, I think going through this process, I've really appreciated this term called the Janus word. So the Janus word is a word in which the opposites hold true for the same word. Mm. So the word fast, you can run fast or you can hold fast, right? So that fast is still used in the same word, but it means two opposite things. Mm. And I feel like being a human is a Janus word because Mm. in that same moment of being a human, you can be inexplicably happy but also terribly sad at the same time. And that's how I feel some days where I am terribly sad that my late husband at 39 was diagnosed with cancer 
six foot two, 80 something kilo man in the peak of his career and died 51 kilos Mm. after five major surgeries and four months in hospital. It's fast. He had a year, Mm. but he died at home, which was a gift that I could give to him being a doctor. Mm. But yeah, the Janus word holds true for being a human. Mm. I can be really sad that James is not here, but I can also be really happy to see the smile on my daughter's face or, you know, that first dive into the ocean in a beautiful day. Mm. And you'd be so happy that tears are streaming down your face, but Mm. you're also really sad that you're everyday person isn't here with you. When you talk about the tears, that lands for me. Sometimes I don't know the difference between I think my grief tears and my grateful tears. Have you had that? They all mesh into, it's like, why am I crying? I think think I'm crying because I'm looking at my daughter and I'm feeling grateful, but I think I'm also crying because my mom's not here. And I think that's totally the epitome of what it feels like to grieve as a human being. Mm. These two opposite things can hold true in the same moment. And it's that gratefulness that you kind of learn and earn as you go through losing someone because you become more grateful for all the simple things in your everyday life. And that happens to me so frequently. So when you said that, it it happens to me almost on a daily basis where you are so happy and grateful to be alive, but you're so desperately sad that the person you love isn't there and being alive with you. You use the word earn. Whoa. That's the truth Mm. is through these rich but textured and painful life experiences, we do earn that gratefulness at the other side. We have to go through that process. Earn and learn. I just really loved the description of that. Mm. Um, We are here. I think bonded on many things, but right now I think we're bonded on our grief. You've mentioned that you lost your beautiful husband, James. I'd love to know more about him. Let's honour him. Um, And also who he remains to you. And I think this has been really interesting for me to explore is they're still the same person they were to us, even in the losing of them. Um, how did you meet and tell us about him? So James and I were together for 14 years and married for 10. And I met him when I was 22 and we were both engineers at the same company. And because I was so young, we kind of grew up together and he was my person. He was an engineer in the truest sense of the word, meticulous, um, detail-oriented, supremely talented. But besides all that, he was a great father and husband because he was my cheerleader. Mm. He held space for me. He was my anchor in many ways. I think one of the things that I really love is that women of the world who are going out and doing amazing things are dynamic. I imagine it to be much like um, Mr. Squiggle. Remember when as a child we had Mr. Mr. Squiggle? Squiggle. Yeah. 
So Mr Squiggle used to go on his spacewalks and then Miss Anne, or I think it was Miss Jane, Miss Jane, I think it was Miss Jane or Miss Anne, one of... It was they a, both sound familiar yeah, to me, yeah. Would reel Mr Squiggle back in when he would go off on too far of a spacewalk. And that was James. You know, whenever I, I went too that. far, he was my anchor. Come home. Come home, pulled me back in. And by too far, are we talking about ambition? Or just, you know, um, everyday craziness of life yeah. where you go off on a bit of a tangent and a bit of a whirlwind. <laughs> and James was that person that just p- pulled me back in on that spacewalk. And I to him, mm. you know, when he would go off on a spiral and having that anchor in life, having someone who is your cheerleader mm. is a superpower because you can go off into the world and do amazing things and know that there's someone at home anchoring you. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise that was a superpower until I lost it. Yeah. It's the type of love and respect and care. You know, I think a lot about my husband, Tony, and the only reason I've been able to do what I'm doing today is because of that support and identifying that it is rare. So rare. You know, Mm. to have a partner who says, go for it. Absolutely. And I've got it here until I don't. And then you come back and we work on plan B. Um, I was recently in conversation with um, Lee Campbell. Mm. Beautiful. She lost her dad to cancer in 2020. And she made this kind of really simple point that our parents are supposed to die. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we have this acknowledgement that they will die before us and that is coming for us one day. But then when I think about beautiful you and other widows, what feels like is not supposed to happen is that we lose that life partner and, you know, for you, the father of your beautiful girl, Vivian. Has it felt unfair or have you not gone there? Oh, I've raged. Raged. Raged against the universe because I was widowed at 35. We had a three-year-old daughter. Our life in many ways was just beginning. Mm. We had plans, um, so many great plans, have more children, et cetera, et cetera, travel the world. And his cancer was so rare that there's not even studies done about it. There's only cases done about it. Wow. So it became a question of raging into the universe. Many nights where him and I would just sit screaming, like, why us? Mm. Out of all the streets, out of all the families in the world, why us? And yes, it is very unfair. But it doesn't take away the fact that there is unfairness in the world for everyone. Mm. Um. So I never, I never put my grief or my circumstances as um, woe is me, I'm a victim because it doesn't help because unfortunately we live in a world where many of us have, have you know, experienced grief or trauma or tragedy in some way and I think unfairness isn't going to get me out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. So it's best to say this is the card I was dealt. Mm. And so how will I move forward from that? Mm. 
Makes me think a lot about um, something I talk a lot about in my work is allowing. It's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do is can we allow our life experiences to unfold Um, or the flip side of that is that we resist them and in that resistance we create suffering for ourselves. But this is one of those ones where it's like, of course I'm going to resist this. You know, there's no amount of spiritual knowledge or evolution or self-help books that make this okay. Can I ask, did he have any level of acceptance before he went or did it still feel like towards the end um, or at the end that he didn't want to go? He didn't want to go. Yeah. No grown man will go through five open abdominal surgeries, be in ICU three times and try chemotherapy, radiotherapy, everything under the sun if he didn't want to be alive. Yeah. But unfortunately, will was not enough. Mm. We had hope even towards the end. Doctors giving you hope? No, just us, our Mm. personal hope. But that being said... The only thing that couldn't be taken away from us was hope. His health was taken away. His weight was taken away. His dignity was taken away. You know, he was so fragile towards the end. I was his primary carer um, in many ways. And the only thing that couldn't be taken away from us was hope. Mm. And, and that's okay. It kept us buoyed. Was it false hope? Maybe. Mm. But what else do we have? But it was a survival mechanism mm. and it kept us going. But onto your point about that kind of um, no matter how much spiritual work that you do, it's still going to hurt. It's so true. There's this beautiful Japanese haiku that has really helped me actually and it's from a Buddhist um, master who has studied Buddhist philosophy for years and years and years and In Buddhism, there's a sense of impermanence, everything goes, a sense of non-attachment. And the haiku goes, the world is due, D-E-W, so due is impermanent, right? The world is due, yes, the world is due. And this last line, but even so. So the world is due, yes, the world is due, but even so. And that last line is written when his two-year-old daughter died of smallpox. Mm. So as a Buddhist master, he knows the world is due. Yes, the world is due. It is impermanent. We're supposed to be detached from it. Everything comes and goes. But still. But even so. It hurts. But even so. Mm. And that really helped me because there's so many times where I think logically, okay, I need to get on with my day or I need to overcome this grief or why am I crying for the 10th time today? And then I think of that last line, but even so. Mm. Yeah, the allowing. Mm. Do you find yourself, you spoke about why am I crying for the 10th time today? Is there days where I find myself doing this where I'm like, not today, I've got too fucking much on and Betty needs me and... You know, what I found with my grief is it's hard and fast. I seem to go down hard. Um, It happens quickly. It's very painful. And then I pop back up again. And what I've been trying to work through is 
um, how much of this is actually all of the spiritual work and self-development I've done over the years coming into play of that I am allowing it to kind of happen and then I'm popping up sooner? It doesn't feel like suspended grief versus what is dissociation. Mm. So how have you thought about that? Is there moments when you actively know that you're dissociating from the experience or are you just in the fire and the fury all the time? Look, I've initially through um, what Nick Cave describes as the vortex of grief, you are almost dissociating and you don't even know that you're doing it. You are floating above yourself because you're trying to survive. And in that moment, you've got to just survive, right? But when you come out of that vortex of grief, whenever that may be for you, there is a moment where you go, okay, all the work that I've put in through the years, therapy, meditation, mindfulness, you know, all the all, things, things actually don't prevent you from being sad, but like you said, allows you to notice the signs and symptoms of when you go into that vortex again. And it allows you to have pop out a bit quicker, Mm. to have the tools to be able to firstly acknowledge what you're feeling and then actually feel it and then come out of it. Because with grief, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go through it. (laughs) You have to go through it. And that's unfortunately a lesson that I had to learn. I thought I could go over it, under it, around it by trying to survive, do all the things, be busy, be frantically busy. But really at the end of the day, sitting with it and riding through it was the only healing thing that I could Mm. do. Did you have anyone in your life that um, reflected that back to you at a point or is that something you arrived at at your own, you know, our loved ones can be these beautiful, what sometimes feel like unnecessary mirrors? Yeah, I mean, I remember a really sad but honest conversation I had with my two best girlfriends in Melbourne where they sat me down after, I mean, not terribly bad, terribly bad behaviour, but it was just a behaviour of, um, you know, dating toxic men mm. and using um, dating as a, as a coping mechanism really. And they sat me down and they said, this isn't you. This isn't you. And we know that you're grieving because it's only been, what, a few months. But this isn't you. And having your loved ones reflect that to you. That's hard. So hard. Sobering, hard, but thank God. Mm -hmm. Your loved ones, your true loved ones will tell you the truth. And whether you like it or not, you need to hear it. And from that moment, it was like almost like a light switch. I began to go inwards and I began doing things for me and doing the proper healing work that was needed and finally going back to homeostasis in the truer sense of the word, which was coming home to myself. I didn't need to frantically date to fill that void. I didn't need to keep doing, traveling, filling, filling, filling so that I could feel the emptiness that was in me. Um, It was finally doing the self-reflective work and focusing on myself and my daughter that allowed me to come out to Mm. the other side. Mm. 
One thing I've been feeling into, and I think honestly directly experiencing, which is not something I really say out loud much because I don't know about you, but I mean, I feel really privileged to have this conversation with you and hope to hold it for Mm. you in some way. But I'm always thinking about who is deserving of our stories and deserving of our our grief, you know. Um, So I don't sort of say this lightly, but this kind of now embodied belief that my my mum dropped her body and one day I know my husband's going to drop his body and I'm going to drop my body, but that her consciousness remains and I feel her. And in some ways I feel closer to her now than I did, especially in the last couple of years when there is that distance when they're sick, when you do move mm. into carer. Mm. Has that felt true for you? Do you feel him or not? Initially I didn't and I think that was once again the vortex of grief and that was, you know, a numbing mechanism, you know. So I didn't I didn't even want to talk to him, almost like anger. How could you leave me here mm. by myself with our three-year-old daughter? Yeah. But once I started accepting the gestures of kindness from the universe through community, friendship, love for myself, taking care of myself, love of my daughter, those tiny gestures of kindness pulled me out of that grief and I could see that he was all around me. Mm. And when you talk about crying with gratitude, it's also a crying of yearning Mm. and knowing that they are here in some way. So looking out into the ocean, you're like, oh, he's here with me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I know. She's here too. All these tears are actually for you. Oh, thank you. Because, like I said before, our parents are supposed to die. I have a lot of acceptance. She was really ready and she told me even when she got diagnosed that she felt fulfilled. Mm. You know, she was 64 so she was young but she's like, I got married, I had my four babies. Betty was the last thing, her grandchild, you know, she got to have that experience. So these tears are like, it's this selfish thing where I'm like, I can't imagine. And I wouldn't want people to imagine And that's part of why I want to talk about grief in a way that's helpful and constructive because I I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. Because like you say, there's a natural order of things where your parents do die before you. An unnatural order of things is if your child dies before you or if the person that you are meant to go through a partnership with dies earlier than anticipated. So he was not a man in his 80s. Yeah. He was a man who just turned 40 and we had a three-year-old daughter. So I wouldn't wish it upon anyone because not only do I have to grieve his death and 
and everything associated with it. But also I had to grieve a whole life that we had imagined for ourselves. That life is no longer. The child that we were supposed to have, the holidays, the amazing work that he's putting out into the world, all of that, all of that narrative that we built for us is now gone. Even as a doctor, I've had to change my work. Going back as a single mum to a hospital system with a young child isn't actually fathomable because I don't have a plan B. I can't say to my patients in hospital, hold your cardiac arrest. Yeah. I've got to pick up my daughter at six. I can't do that. So even my career goals and everything have had to change. And so I wouldn't wish that upon anyone because it's not only losing a loved one, you're also losing a life. Mm. Um, you've spoken about your beautiful daughter a few times. Um, what has it been like really to mother in and around loss and how do you even think about trying to hold her in her experience when you're just trying to survive it yourself? Yeah. So the great thing about being a toddler is that they're very present moment. Yeah. You know, they have no sense of, um, you know, nostalgia for the past and they also don't know about the future that they've lost. So they're very present moment. So her grief is more acknowledgement that her story is different from a normal nuclear family story. So she will ask things like, how come I don't have a daddy? Or where's daddy? When's daddy going to come back? And I will have to remind her that, well, daddy died and daddy will always be in our hearts, but he's not coming back. Mm. And it's really hard for a toddler to understand that. I remember the day that he died. She came home from preschool and I had to tell her, Daddy died today. And she didn't understand. And she started looking for him under the bed. Oh, God. And in the cupboard. She didn't understand that Daddy had died. So she was looking for him, thinking he was hiding. She didn't understand the concept. That is heart-wrenching. And that will still stick with me because it was that innocence of like, oh, no. He must be here somewhere. He must be here somewhere. And looking under the bed and looking in the cupboards. And that's like an imprint. You know, I can only imagine for the rest of your life. She won't remember. No, she won't remember because she was only three. She has some concept and some memories, but I will hold that memory for her. Yeah. And I talk about James every day, like, oh, you remind me just of your daddy or your hair looks exactly like your dad or, you know, she lines her toys up like the engineer that her dad was, <laughs> like perfectly lined up, that's her dad. And bring him in and naturally into the conversation is actually really important that to normalise that he was part of our lives and he will always be a part of our lives. 
but he isn't physically here. Yeah. I think we should get some tissues. Just give me one yes, second. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Um, in the weeks after my mum passed, I started to feel some relief. And of course I felt really guilty about that, you know, when it would sort of come through as a wave, I'd be like, no, 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 you are, oh my God, this is not okay. You can't be, you know, thinking that. But what we both know is helping to care for someone who is in the dying process is a very rich experience, but it's an all-consuming experience. And we put ourselves last. Um, What advice would you give to someone who might go through this in the future? Like, can we even care for ourselves in that time? Um, I think you can do it in small ways, but honestly, I was exactly like you. So during the time that James was sick, um, and he was sick for um, close to eight months before he passed away, I was working full-time as a doctor in the pandemic. I would go and see my patients in the morning, do my ward rounds, do my work, and then visit James in the hospital after work. Same hospital? No, different hospital. And this was only during a time where you're only allowed one visitor because of the COVID rules. And then I would go home and look after my daughter. And it would be that cycle again and again and again. And honestly, it was survival. I put myself last for so long that coming out of the other side, I was still putting myself last. And it is only now that I could see that that's not doing me or my daughter any favours to put myself last. But in the midst of it, unfortunately, we are in survival mode. Yeah. But there could be tiny moments that you can ask for help. And that's what I did. So my two best girlfriends flew in and they helped me. And it wasn't just logistics, but it was really just the moral support. My mum lived with us for a few months to help take care of my daughter So having community around you and not being afraid to ask for help is actually the first step. You can't do it all on your own. Mm. You can't do it all on your own. And you shouldn't do it all on your own. You know, that in particularly in a lot of Asian and African communities, looking after a sick person is a community or village effort. It's not meant to be done siloed. Yeah. We all need to support each other, everything from, you know, neighbours popping in to have a cup of tea to, you know, friends cooking you meals or sending you flowers or ordering you a meal service. When I think of asking for help, I think of these lovely questions and I think this is so important for people supporting others through um, sickness or grief or anything really is That first question that you ask is, how are you, Mm. is so important. How are you really? Yeah. And letting them express how they are because often it's forgotten. Mm. And the second question of, what do you need? And they might say, I actually just need a hug. Yeah. Or I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. (laughs) Can you look after my daughter for five minutes? And that third question of, 
how can I help? Hmm. Because what they need might be not something that you can provide, but how can you help anyway? Yeah. So I think those three questions are really easy signposts for Mm. people to hold space for someone during grief process or sickness or even um, helping a mother who's just got a newborn. Yeah. And they're simple questions, but sometimes when you don't know what to say and you have those signposts at the back of your mind, at least you can start somewhere. Which is so helpful because I think what you would have experienced even more than me, but me a lot, is people just don't say anything because they're like, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want her to get upset. So it's always a kind-hearted gesture to not raise it in the room. But actually we are looking for an entry point Mm. to ask for help. Mm -hmm. We're proud women, Mm. you know, capable women. So it's not our first thing to be like, hey, I need X, Y, Z. So what we do need is an entry point to vocalizing what we need. And so what that takes, and I hear what you're saying is kind of courage from the person on the other side of the table to be like, this is going to be awkward, but I've got these questions I'm going to ask, but we're not, we don't know them or we're not used to saying them. Yeah. Um, But we're also, so many of us aren't equipped to hold what comes on the back of those questions. And I think that is a lot of what I think like our individual work to do is building our um, capacity to hold space. And to talk about grief, Mm. talking about being sad, talking about dying. It's not part of the Western lexicon, you know. It's not even part of the medical lexicon really. It's very hard for people to talk about dying. Whereas in some cultures, dying is part of the seasons of life and they can talk about it in a very open way. And there's a celebratory nature, Mm. right? Um, I love this story where um, the Congo people who have suffered so much trauma want to collectively go through some sort of, you know, healing process. So an American psychologist comes in and says, okay, I can help with this. I'm, go- I'm trained to do this. Let's do this. And the Congo people went through the process and then asked that person to leave because they said to the person, your Western medicine forced us to talk about our trauma separately. You isolated us in dark rooms to talk about our trauma and you didn't bring music, life, community, or food. How is that healing? Wow. So please leave. And I hear that, and coming from a Chinese-Australian background, that really resonates with me because, yes, it is important to do therapy because I have a grief counsellor myself, but also at the same time, you don't really need to sit in a dark room to talk about your grief. You also need the other part, which is community, love, joy, spirit, dancing. Yeah, celebration as well. Makes me think a lot about um, our ageing population and the lack of support for people working in aged care and therefore not enough people going into aged care like we know we have a problem coming. And so much of what you're talking about is in tribes and traditional communities, um, death is something that we held together and we're not doing that here. And I think about, you know, even back to sort of, I suppose, colonisation and what we, um, what we lost in that process. Australia feels culturally flat 
Mm. It isn't, of course, mm. because of our the history of our First Nations people. We have so much to learn from yeah. then and it's just like funny that we're doing this on, you know, the day before Invasion Day. Yeah. Look, we have so much to learn from our Indigenous people and traditional cultures in general and I think part of my understanding as a doctor is to bridge those two things because mm. there's great things that Western cultures and Western medicine has brought but there's also things that we need to learn from our Indigenous sisters and brothers and non-traditional medicine such as Eastern medicine and I think we are now slowly coming into the fact that we have collective experiences to learn and share and that there shouldn't be a hierarchy of um, of best decision-making mm. because actually things that we're learning about the importance of village living, the importance of community is actually just as important as we're learning about, you know, DNA mm. <laughs> and scientific, you know, um, polypharmacy and things like that, right? All those things are actually in the melting pot of what we need to learn as a collective. Mm. And I think through this experience, it has made me realise that all the things that I hold near and dear in, in Chinese culture has really uplifted me. Uh, the understanding that there's intergenerational love and care. There's no separation of old people, you know, going to the homes. We look after each other as a community has been really nourishing mm. because it's, you know, you learn from the old and you learn from the young as well. And there's that lovely sense of community that we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. <sighs> um, you've spoken about healthy people come from a healthy planet. Mm. Um, I wondered, I suppose a good sort of segue from what we've just been talking about, have you made any connections between not just your husband's cancer but cancer in general and the quality of our air and our food, um, our water, like as a, as a doctor but also a woman who's grieving and who's like, cultivated a life and a passion around living a zero-waste life, are all of these things beginning to meet anywhere now? Like how important is our living conditions to what's going on inside our bodies or does cancer not come from that? I think it's all connected, mm. honestly. I think we all know intuitively that everything is connected in one way or another. Even talking about the physics of it all, we're all energetic particles, right? So energetically what happens to you and me and our planet is all going to affect all of us. Yeah. But also the fundamental units of life, just speaking scientifically, is healthy air, water, soil. None of those things um, are actually, you know, in a healthy state at the moment. Mm -hmm. We can honestly say around the world all those things are actually almost in a rare form of extinction almost, right, because of climate change and the effects that the human impact has on, on, on the world. But in my book, A Zero Waste Family, one of the things I talk about is an analogy of why this is all so interconnected and important. And I call it the rule of threes. So a human being can live three months 
up to three months without food. Whoa, up to three months, yeah? A human being can only live three days without clean water. And we can only live three minutes without clean air. Mm. Right? So if we don't have those fundamental units of life taken care of, clean air, water, soil, how can we have healthy people? Mm. It's really as simple as that. So when we talk about the slogan from Doctors for the Environment, healthy planet, healthy people, it is all interconnected and related in that way. And we are seeing a rise in all sorts of conditions, chronic health conditions, um, malignant conditions, as a result of the impact that we're having on the planet. Mm. You know, so I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty details of that because it seems obvious to me that we need to take care of our planet so that we can take care of ourselves Mm. because we are disassociating. Yeah, real. Right? That we are not connected And boy, is Mother Nature telling us otherwise. Mm. We are. And what we do on an individual level has an impact on the planet. Mm. And we need to understand that so that we can make better decisions in the future. Mm -hmm. Help us understand what that looks like lifestyle-wise. If I'm thinking as an individual who wants to live a long, healthy and prosperous life, Um, have you been reflecting at all on your own lifestyle and your own intake and what's going into the body? And I've been doing a lot of that for myself, you know, just really kind of truly reflecting on how my mum lived. Mm. Um, It was generational. Mm. You know, we just know more, Mm. you know, and so we do more and we we do better. But what is that? look like? Because I don't feel like it's drastic. You know what I mean? It's not like we're turning our lifestyles upside down. It, it seems quite simplistic, actually. Actually, that's the key term. Mm. I went from being a maximalist in every sense of the word to being a minimalist. And I was, you know, going through this kind of climbing the corporate ladder, drinking, going out partying, eating all the foods, thinking that this lifestyle of excess mm. was actually the epitome of success. But what I've realised in this whole journey is that the simplest things are actually the best things and the most nourishing and healthy things. So talking about foods, eating real food, it's as simple as that, Mm. real food that is grown from Mother Nature, organic if possible, Um, looking at where your food comes from, making those simple choices, eating less meat for those that can. Yeah. Right? And and embracing what that brings and how you feel towards it. You know, there's some people who might need to eat a bit more, a bit less, uh, intuitive eating Mm. as well. But going back to a simpler way of life where you're removing all the excesses is actually the best way to live. So if you feel like you're consuming too much in terms of fast fashion, fast food, fast furniture, whatever it may be, stripping it back, buying secondhand, choosing quality over quantity, make do and mend, all those simple truths that probably maybe not our parents but our grandparents' generation lived. 
is actually a really nourishing and gentler way to live for all of us. It's in our DNA. It is. It's like a remembering. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start to live um, in alignment with nature, that's what it's felt like for me is a homecoming. It's not a learning. It's a, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's it because it's in us. Um, it's just about the deprogramming and the shedding and the dropping of the expectations and the stories, which is not an easy thing to do. No. Um, I wondered if to kind of begin to kind of consciously close our beautiful conversation, what's here for you? Are you there yet? Like are we in, are we in lesson reflection territory or, or not? Um, like what are you gleaning or anything at all or is it just hard and hurting? I can honestly say that I am better than I was Mm. and coming back to coming homecoming, homeostasis, Mm. right, is almost there for me and I don't think I'll, I don't, I think we always fluctuate, you know, but when what I'm feeling now is better than I have in the whole year, right? The last nine months have been terrible. My husband only passed away nine months ago. But I'm finally coming out to the other end. And the lesson I've learned from all of this is be of service to yourself. That's the first step. Be of service to yourself and then you can be of service to others. Because for so long I was at the bottom of the list yeah. being a carer to everyone makes me else. emotional thinking about it. I had gained a lot of weight, stress, cortisol, adrenaline, not eating well. And finally I am doing the things that I need to take care of myself. And that might mean getting therapy. That might mean taking a mental health day and not feeling guilty about it. Yes. <laughs> that might be putting up your hand and saying to your neighbours, I'm actually feeling really low today. Do you mind if we spend a day together so I'm not alone with my daughter? Um, and all that might mean just really joyously embracing, you know, being at the beach, looking at the horizon, being, being a little bit hedonistic and indulging in some really good chocolate yeah. and wine. <laughs> All those things are part of the spectrum of being a human Mm. and how great is it to be alive? It's a privilege Mm. because for some, you know, for everyone, life is short. Yeah. But for some it's even shorter. Shorter. And that's the thing, like, I suppose, you know, driving here I was like, I hope I hope that's what I hear, you know, that having been through what you've been through that you want to live and that you're grateful to live because I try and put myself in your shoes. I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to. Uh, And I don't think anyone needs to really because I wouldn't wish this upon anyone, like I said before. But I can honestly say to you that, it has been so hard. It has taken everything from me. But from the taking away of everything, I've had to rebuild. And I'm not 100% there yet. Yeah. 
but God damn it, I'm really happy again. Yeah. To have the courage to go out and be of service to myself first and foremost so that I can be of service to my daughter, to my patients and also to the world. And out of all of this, I've really, really just appreciated being alive because it could all change in an instant. So um, when we first recorded, I think my final question would have still been when you're sitting in your true self, who are you? Mm. But the podcast has evolved as Mm. I've evolved and my work's evolved. Now um, the way I like to finish is by really understanding when you're sitting in your true self, how do you define success? And I feel like so much of it you've spoken about, but share it with us again is what does true success look and feel like to you? True success to me feels like love, love for myself, love given to me from my community and loving the planet. And in all those things, underlying things, it's a, it's a sense of um, an ease, a flow. And I can't, and I could never really define it before because previously success was, you know, the dirty triad of money, power and status. Yes. That was success. But now it's ease and flow and love. Mm. And I think that is rare, but also, God damn, it doesn't cost any money to go get those things. It's, a, it's, right. it's, it's an authenticity. It's um, really... Internally experienced. Yeah. It's really just coming home to yourself in a way that allows you to open up to love again, allows you to be open to love in the community and opens you to love others as well. Yeah. And not be scared to do that on the back of what you've experienced. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, thank you. Oh, my God. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. If something I said today landed deeply in your body and felt true, I want to encourage you to move into intentional action. Visit getoffline.co and consider signing up to my mailing list. You'll receive conscious career love notes from me, invitations to learn with me, and much more. One last thing. If you know someone who would benefit from listening to Offline, please share it with them. 